everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's time for the weekly spotlight for the week of February 15th, 2022. Uh, happy Valentine's Day, a day late. Hope everybody had a, a good <laughs> holiday. You know, it's one of the greeting card holidays. So, uh, as far as the DC books this week, uh, I don't know, a little, little uneven, a little up and down. So, there's, there was some standout stuff, there was some stuff that was okay. Mm. There's a couple books that we actually talked about last week that got pushed a week. So, yeah, yeah, I, you I agree with you. There's, there's a, definitely a couple standouts here that I that I'll really be singing the praises of. Uh, I'll be praising another Tom King book, book God forbid, and uh, you know uh, some surprises there. And I, I'm loving the Flash again. So like, there's some Tom King and Jeremy Adams love, and some some were a little bit underwhelming to me, but uh, for the most part, I think we're remaining steady and. Uh, yeah, well, I'm looking forward to talking about them. Yeah, uh, again, I, I we've gotten so many announcements for like big stuff, like Dark Crisis is coming. We know Death of the Justice League is coming. Dark Crisis is kind of spinning out of that. Uh, it's going to be an interesting second half of the year. You know, we've talked about DC maybe putting out a little bit too much content. Certainly, when you talk about their best books compared to the their worst books in a way that it's a pretty big disparity, you know, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to badmouth any, anybody's books in particular. I won't name any names, but there's a couple of books where I'm just, I, they just haven't landed for me. Um, but then when you talk about some of the better stuff that they're doing, whether it's Nightwing or whatever, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of good things out there. Um, but you just wish for a little more consistency in the line. So, uh, I guess we'll see if that happens uh, coming out of uh, Dark Crisis. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I'm, I'm looking forward to Death of the Justice League. I'm really looking forward to Dark Crisis. I think one of the hallmarks has been Joshua Williamson. Uh, as a longtime DC reader, I, I'm really enjoying the... I'm always good for a good crisis, you know? I don't know if that says more about my life than than the, than the fictional uh, DC universe, but I love a good crisis like, it, like any good DC reader. And I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. And like you said, you make a very good point about the highs of DC right now are really high. And we're talking about, you know, I'm biased. I love, uh, you and I both love Jeremy Adams, The Flash, and and uh, I'm, I'm loving some Tom King. But the, the, the low... Suicide you know, Squad's another Yeah, Suicide Squad's book. doing really good. And uh, we've gotten some sneak peeks at uh, of uh, War for Earth 3, which I think is going to be really good. Uh, Trial of the Amazons might be a little bit more hit and miss. But, you know, like you said, it, the highs are highs and, you know... Like you said, more consistency would be nice, but uh, the sky is not falling at DC quality wise. I think there's there's enough there to keep more than the, to keep the line afloat. And uh, you know, shame on some of the naysayers. You know, if it's got to be you and I propping up and being positive, then so be it. <laughs> yeah, the other thing I, I wonder about is, and I've said this before in terms of the crisis, just how it this <laughs> this more than any crisis leading into it feels like it feels like an afterthought. At some point, I don't know when, when are we going to feel like it's really affecting the line and tied into everything. I think the last time I felt like that with one of DC's big events was probably Final Crisis. Even Metal and Death Metal, even though they had, they had like one-shot tie-ins with a bunch of anthology stories instead of actually tying into the books that had those characters or the anthologies were characters that don't have books. It, it, the, the events have felt like siloed in a way, the last few events, as opposed to a big line wide. And, and I get it. Like it's, I have mixed feelings about it. Cause I don't want to have to buy, you know, a thousand books or whatever and 
Nobody wants that. Books are so expensive these days. But man, there's something to be said for if if this dark crisis is really going to change the way the DC universe is going forward, if it's going to bring back people like Alfred who've been gone for a while, if it's going to you know change the traje- trajectory of the line, then I feel like it needs to be big and it needs to cross over with stuff so that it actually gets attention instead of people just, well, I'm just going to keep reading my Batman stuff or I'm just going to keep reading my Teen Titans Academy and I don't even realize there's a big event going on. And then when everything gets shuffled around, I, I feel lost. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. The flip side to what you're saying that might be a positive, paradoxically, is the fact that the, this crisis event, the infinite, cri- the infinite frontier leading into Justice League incarnate, leading into Death of the Justice League that will lead into Dark Crisis, all of those series seems, seem uh, actually comfortably, comfortably, I think, accessible. They're, it's, they're, they're not dirt. They're not obviously directly connected to other titles in the DC universe. It's not directly connected to Trial of the Amazons. It's not directly connected to War for Earth 3. It's not directly connected to what's going on in the Batman comics or Detective comics. There does seem to be sort of like each title having their own continuity. And while there is some wonkiness going on, if if you're someone who just kind of likes a good crisis every now and then, you could literally just pick up Infinite Frontier, Justice League Incarnate, Death of the Justice League and walk right into Dark Crisis and you'd be happy. You actually don't need to read anything else. So it's the oddest thing. I, I'm kind of a hypocrite because I here I am. I bitch and complain about if about continuity. And yet at the same time, I'm kind of I'm kind of giving some props to Williamson about keeping things, you know, actually fairly tight knit leading into this crisis. And there is some times with his Robin and with his Deathstroke. And so. I don't know. It's like uh, I, it's like I can't really come down on one side or the other. I think there's a little bit something there for for everyone. Uh, but I, at the same time, I agree with you. Again, maybe I'm being I'm, I'm contradicting myself, but I kind of feel that things are a little bit disjointed. So I don't know. This this year is going to be interesting as we move forward. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way. Uh, I'm kind of two minds, but I don't, like I said, I don't want to have to buy a bunch of stuff. Um, and it does feel siloed and you can jump on. It's easy to understand, you know, as easy as a crisis ever is to understand. So, yeah, I'm, I'm conflicted about it too, right? The thing I go back to is is just that when it crosses over with everything, inherently it just feels more important. Like, oh, I better pay attention. This story's touching everything. Um, but I don't know. It might This might just be a product, an inevitable byproduct of the fact that DC is trying to have its cake and eat it too with this whole idea that, Everything counts. Everything matters. So, I mean, <laughs> this crisis will happen and who knows if anything will change and if it does, how long it'll stick. So yeah. uh, anyway, let's go ahead and dive into the first book that we're going to talk about in detail today. It's Batman the Night number two. It's written by Chip Zdarsky. Art is by Carmine Di Gian Domenico. Colors by Ivan Placencia. Letters by Pat Broso. Uh, a little bit of a time jump between the end of last issue and this one. Last issue ended with Bruce Wayne basically calling the cops on his his quote-unquote therapist, which was Dr. Hugo Strange, which I talked a little bit about. I didn't really care for putting Hugo Strange in Bruce Wayne's life so early. Um, but when we join uh, this book, he's already moved on. He's left Gotham. We know that's what he was planning on doing. He wanted to travel the world and kind of uh, learn how to become 
Batman, basically. He doesn't know that it's Batman yet, right? Like, he hasn't sat in his father's study and had the bat fly through the window at this point in his life. But he knows he wants to fight crime, and he's got to get better. And to be the best, he's got to learn from the best. And so that's the, the story that, that kick, really kicks off into high gear in this issue. He's in Paris, and he's running around at night. <laughs> I mean, it looks to me like he's wearing dress shoes, which I don't really get. Uh, and he's got, you know, a jacket and regular pants on and like a button down shirt. Like if you're looking to like do parkour and train, like I would think you'd wear like more athletic clothing, uh, but that's just yeah, me. It's only been four uh, weeks though. Right? It's only been four weeks since he left Gotham is what the narrative seems. To yeah. Yeah. I, and, and that's totally fine, but it only takes like 10 minutes to go into a clothing store and buy some, <laughs> buy a sweatsuit or something, something. Uh, instead of, I mean, it looks like he's out there running around, you know, nearly in a three-piece suit. Uh, but anyways, he's running around Paris. He comes across this cat burglar who seems to be uh, very skilled, and so much to the point where she shows up the next day when he's at a cafe, outdoor cafe. Uh, she apparently recognized him the night before. She tracks him down. Uh, even though she's a criminal and Bruce has some mixed feelings about it, he, he decides to ask her, and she's more than willing it's kind of kindred spirits in a way. Uh, so they sort of team up and Bruce spends quite a bit of time learning from her. Uh, now, the other part of this is while he's doing this, there's uh, a serial killer going around Paris killing people. So th that serial killer and Bruce and this thief end up sort of crossing paths at the end of the story. Um, and whether it's just all completely coincidental or there's something more going on than uh, you might otherwise realize remains to be seen. Um, so I am, I am enjoying this. Um, we, we even got a, a Henri Ducard appearance, which I appreciated as well. Um, the only thing that I'll say, and it's not necessarily a negative, but this is supposedly going to tell us, like the story of Bruce traveling and training based on the pacing of this. Cause this issue wasn't paced particularly fast. It was very focused. There's only 10 issues of this. I don't know how we get the whole, unless it's big giant time jumps. I don't get how we cover the years that Bruce Wayne was gone from Gotham. Unless, like I said, we're going to get, big time jumps in between issues a lot greater than four months. I, I think you're right. Rather. I think that's exactly what's going to happen in order to make it work. Yeah. So, but, but I mean, this one, this issue ends on a cliffhanger. So I don't know how you do a big jump unless you then flash back. So, uh, but anyway, I, I am enjoying it. I, I think the Carmen A. Dijon Domenico art works. I'm a fan of Chip Zdarsky. So yeah, even though it's more Batman, I'm, I'm still digging on this. Yeah, I, I I quite like it. I like the the gray shadow, the, the sort of like this this older fem this is old this is like an older Selena Kyle mentor. You know, this this gray shadow is what she goes by in the Paris press, and she's uh, rumored. There's there's a lot of similarities between the gray shadow and a future uh, a future Selena Kyle that Bruce Wayne will one day meet, and. It's uh, you know she's she's like a mentor to him and she there's a they're kindred spirits and there's even a, a sexual attraction between a young Bruce Wayne and this older woman but she's she's got the sense to know that you know she's she's not going to take advantage of Bruce Wayne even though there's a part of her older self that <laughs> wishes she was younger so that she could and uh, 
but it was very well done. Chip Sardarsky, you can tell he's had a lot of fun. He has a lot of fun writing this, and and this is a Bruce Wayne who who's very he's very determined and passionate. In fact, even at the beginning, you know, the Gray Shadow says to him, you know, you, you got to work on your accent. And the next day, when she meets him at the cafe, or you know, sneaks up on him at the cafe, and it you know sort of introduces herself, already he's improved his accent that she can't, you know, he that he sounds almost like a native uh, Parisian. So uh, it's just you you can. You can tell that Bruce Wayne is somebody. He, this is definitely Bruce Wayne on a mission. It's just four weeks out of Gotham. You got to wonder, you know, you know. It makes me wonder exactly what else he has done. You made a really good point about, you know, what what areas of Bruce Wayne's training and 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 the life he had before he be- went back to Gotham and became Batman. Which which pivotal events is is Sardaski going to be focusing on? And the great thing about this series is that even though it's only ten issues long, there's n- nothing to say we can't have Batman the Night Two or Batman the Night Three. This could just be bits, you know. This could be easily be an ongoing series. And in fact, I would love it to be an ongoing series because I've always sort of pictured Bruce Wayne's training prior to him being Batman with being at least 10 years long. So there's at least, in my view, 10 years worth of stories of, of, of what happened before he became Batman, at least in my own head canon. And so I, I love, I love, I love stories like this. These are the types of stories I never get tired of because you got to imagine that Bruce Wayne met all kinds of extraordinary people. And when he was trained by the best, this gray, gray shadow is, is clearly one of the best as well. And, and the cliffhanger here where Henry Ducard shows up, we know, we know from Batman lore that Henry Ducard becomes one of uh, Bruce Wayne's mentors as well. This is uh, really good. And, uh, you know, and and the art by uh, the the Demonico there is is fantastic as well and yeah this is this is well done easily it's uh I will say uh you know heads up this is my second favorite of the week this uh this is my as a comic book I, I quite enjoyed this one right on uh well we have the final issue of Aquaman the Becoming it's issue number six written by Brandon Thomas Serge Acuna and Diego Orlatuga on pencils. Serge Acuna and Wade Von Grabager on inks. Adriana Lucas handles the colors and world design on letters. Uh, how did you think this all wrapped up, Rock? I thought it wrapped up rather rather predictably. I haven't, uh, you know, nothing about this. Um, well, let me let me focus on what I think. What what I think is maybe worked better than than maybe I expected it to. Is we did definitely got we we got to meet Jackson Hyde's family. We got to meet his, you know, his mother and his sister, and uh, there's no question that there's some there's some degree of dif- dysfunction there, but uh, I mean they're all part of. Clearly, he's got much more of a tie to to the to the Zebels. He he's a he's a full fledged Zebelian, and so is his mother, his sister, and his grandmother is is uh, frankly his grandmother is is arguably villainous, and. Um, you know, this this is really moving. This is moving Jackson Hyde into a position where we're we're going to be moving into the moving into Aquaman. And I'm not I'm not even sure. I I'm sure at one point I read the the solicitations for Aquaman, Aquaman that that event. And I'm not even sure what the hell it's going to involve, other than maybe the you know some here Jackson Hyde they they overcome a, a plot by Zebelian rebels to essentially uh take out uh, an attack on on Atlantis and i i i don't find this to be i find this to be 
I, I get what Brandon Thomas is doing. Is tr he's trying to give Jackson Hyde more, um, making his family more interesting, which is kind of, in and of itself is a little bit odd because, you know, it's isn't it kind of weird, I, I think, that Jackson Hyde went from having just like a supervillain dad and now in the span of two series with the Aquaman becoming and the Black Manta series, suddenly we got his dad, Black Manta, who's now arguably an anti-hero as opposed to a straight-up villain. And now he's got a, a grandmother, a mother, and a sister who are all part of the this rich, rich complex Zabellian culture. And, and, you know, Arthur Curry telling Jackson Hyde, you're Aquaman, making it clear that Aquaman isn't a person. Aquaman is a legacy. And that, you know, it's, you know, you can be Aquaman, you just have to claim the mantle, you know, and it's interesting here. And it sort of goes to the, uh, clearly DC is embracing the idea of legacy saying, you know, no, if you're Aquaman is a legacy, Aquaman is not Arthur Curry, Aquaman is a legacy, just like Superman is a legacy, just like Batman is a legacy, you know, so clearly, it's clear where, what DC is embracing here and Marvel's doing it too. And, you know, all the power to her. Now, anybody appears can be Aquaman. Jackson Hyde can assume the Aquaman mantle. He clearly, he's a very heroic character here. And um, there's a lot of action, a lot of action. His sister ends up getting injured here. Uh, this was very kinetically paced. Uh, at one point, Jackson Hyde gets very, very angry. And he almost like uh, kills one of the, uh, one of the, one of the uh, terrorists and you could almost, you, you got to wonder if he's sort of channeling his inner father. Like at, at one point there's a great sequence where it shows Jackson Hyde losing it. And, and it's over five panels. And one of the panels, it, it, it juxtaposes the image of his father, black Manta. And you got to wonder, you know, you know, black Manta has a lot of anger in him as well, uh, at least in his legacy. And so Jackson Hyde, you got to wonder, you know, that's one of the things that Jackson Hyde has to overcome. And so I think that, writer uh, Brandon Thomas has got a, done a good job sort of showing the what Jackson Hyde himself has to overcome and and over the obstacles that he needs to overcome on his hero's journey to become the Aquaman and and it was a nice it was a nice I, I liked having Arthur Curry in this issue because we haven't seen a lot of them in this series but we didn't want of course Arthur Curry to overshadow Jackson Hyde because this was of course the, the point of this series was to focus on Jackson Hyde and I think for the most part it worked I like this this final issue. I thought was I would have liked to have seen more of these this type of action in the earlier issues. This this ends on a higher note than it began in my in my view. I like the opening issue. I shouldn't say that. I really like the opening issue with establishing that relationship. And there are some good moments. And boy, did a lot has happened in six issues in terms of where he started to where he ended up. Like when when you think about how much we learned about his family in six short issues. We got a lot of Aquaman Jackson Hyde mythology crammed in here. And so I what I hope though is that going into Aquaman this uh, that that epic event I'm I hope that it is uh that all this is sort of re-explained to new readers because I suspect a lot of people that might be picking up Aquaman are not will not have necessarily be the same readers who and maybe they didn't read Aquaman the Becoming or Black Manta. So there there's a lot of mythology here I think between even though we, I might have issues with Chuck Brown and Black Manta in terms of how convoluted that story was, I do think that there's a lot of great plot points in Black Manta and what Brandon Thomas has brought here to this title. And I think those the the, the new information we have about these mythologies and the Aquaman um, history, uh, I think that there's a lot to mine here moving forward. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, it, it definitely was a political book in terms of like, 
look at who the the villains are. There's no out and out villain, you know. There's no Ocean Master. There's no Black Manta. There's no Trench. You know, you're talking about Zebelians. You're talking about Atlanteans. You're talking about Zebelians versus Zebelians with the resistance and you know uh, protesting the conscription that the Zebelian government uh, puts in place. So really, we're, we're not we're not talking about some big some big threat from outside, uh, you know, oh, it's the surface dwellers or whatever that Jackson Hyde is trying to, to resolve. It's really, it's all internal strife. You know, you could say in a way it's, it's problems of their own doing. Um, and maybe that's what Aquaman will be about bringing all that together. It's certainly, I mean, they're, they're bringing in black mana, they're bringing in Jackson Hyde, they're bringing in Arthur Curry and his family and Jackson Hyde with this greater supporting cast, as you mentioned. So, um, in a way, we talk about this being the last issue, but it's it's nowhere near being the end of the story. Um, and that's one of the things that I wasn't really prepared for. Not that I necessarily thought, oh, if Brandon Thomas brings this Jackson Hyde story to a close, we're going to res- have all the longstanding political issues that are internal to Zebelian uh, or Zabel be um, – be resolved, and we're going to have the political issues between Atlantis and Zabel uh, resolved as well. Like that's a that's been going on for centuries, and it seems like it would take a lot longer of a of a story. Something that would be a subplot in an Aquaman Aquaman or Aquaman book that would run for you know years, and eventually you'd get to the point where they're they're united. Um, but it, it's interesting because we get a lot of action in this issue. The politics are still there and they're the motivation, kind of the driving force behind all the action. But at the end of the day, we don't even know if Jackson Hyde's mom's going to survive or not. Like there's a lot of stuff that's left on the table in terms of plot threads and storylines and whatnot. Now, we know it leads directly into Aquaman. So that's that's fine. Somebody more cynical than me might say, oh, well you know, this, this isn't an ending at all. And all this is doing, you know, I, I wanted a Jackson Hyde story and all I got was three quarters of a Jackson Hyde story. And now I got to go buy Aquaman month in month out. You know, I think that's always what this was supposed to be. And, and really to, to your point, Rocky, what this series was, was about, it was always supposed to be about was just fleshing out who Jackson Hyde's family is giving us more backstory into his, uh, his mother. We, found out he has a sister, a grandmother. You know, we know his relationship with the Atlanteans, specifically Mira and Arthur Curry and and how they see him. Now we're getting to see the other side, um, you know, where his mother's from and get that aspect of the story. And I imagine with Black Manta being in Aquaman that we're going to get some more of Jackson dealing with his daddy issues for lack of a better term, uh, coming up in, in Aquaman. So um, could this possibly be more remnants of 5G with you know a new generation of heroes taking over? It, it could be. Doesn't necessarily have to be. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic for Aquaman. I Arthur Curry's my guy though, and I kind of wonder if there will come a time when people think of uh, Jackson Hyde, the way they think of Wally West, you know, maybe not to that extent. Wally West is beloved, but I'm just saying, like, if people were to, you were asked somebody, who's your Flash? Oh, uh, Wally West is my Flash. Yep. You know, very few people would say Barry Allen if you're of a certain generation. 
will it be that young, you know younger DC readers that have only started reading DC in the past year or two at some point say, oh no, J Arthur Curry, no, 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 Jackson Hyde, that's Aquaman. Like, will we ever, will we ever get to? Because right now, and don't get me wrong, I love Jackson Hyde. I think he's a great character. Love his look. Love everything about him, especially the the Future State Aquaman that Brandon Thomas did. That series was just outstanding. One of the best series of the, of last year. Um, but Arthur Curry is my guy, Arthur Curry, whether he's in his, uh, traditional orange costume, whether he's shirtless with the beard and the hook, whether he's wearing the blue camouflage costume, Arthur Curry's my guy, yeah. uh, always has been. And, uh, and that was just solidified by the Jeff Johns new 52 Aquaman, which is maybe my favorite Aquaman run. So, so that's my guy. And I can't ever see, Jackson Hyde replacing him. Don't get me wrong. I love Jackson, but when it comes to Aquaman, Arthur Curry's my guy. So we'll see. We'll see what this Aquaman uh, story entails as it, uh, as it unfolds. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have Nubia and the Amazons. This is from writers Stephanie Phillips and Vita Ayala. They are credited with the story. Stephanie Phillips does the script. Aletha Martinez is on pencils. Mark Morales on inks. Romulo Fajardo Jr. on colors. Uh, this uh, – wait. There's no – I was going to say there's no letter. There's no letter um, credited, so I can't credit whoever the letter is if, it's not, if they're not in here. Uh, but anyway, this finishes up the Nubia and the Amazons uh, miniseries. Uh five issues and it leads directly into trial of the Amazons. Now it had a, I mean, it's appropriately titled, right? Nubia and the Amazon. Cause this really did focus quite a bit on Nubia and it introduced us to some new Amazons and some of the politics that Nubia was having to deal with as queen of the Amazons. Cause Hippolyta is over playing Wonder Woman in the justice league. But as the series progressed, it got more and more focused on Nubia herself. Um, and her decision to, well, not just her decision, but the decision that was made to remove her as the Guardians of, uh, of Doom's doorway so she could lead the Amazons and, and make her decisions. But, you know, she, she showed some inexperience and there's nothing wrong with that. She was inexperienced. She wasn't, she hasn't been a queen before. She hasn't been in charge of leading a people or whatnot. So you can kind of understand some of the mistakes that she makes. But what's cool is toward the end of the story, She's sort of leaning into her purview, right? Like leaning into the decisions and the experiences that she had as the guardians for Doom's doorway when she goes through the doorway to figure out what's going on with Medusa and what's going on with Andromeda. Uh, but what was great about the story is she goes through the doorway, not with the intention of I'm going to find Medusa, I'm going to kill Medusa. She's going through because she knows that on the other side of Doom's doorway is where this problem needs to be solved. But she goes through with a sense of empathy and compassion, perhaps mirrored early on in the series by the way she treated the uh, new Amazons who came up through the, the Well of Souls. Um, and so when she gets to the other side, it's not a matter of her battling Medusa like to the death or defeating Medusa. It's more about her reaching out um, to to connect with Medusa, to, to realize, hey, we're more alike than we are different. And and I think that the fact that she uses this new weapon that she got last issue called the Staff of Understanding uh, to kind of bridge that gap, 
You know, that's what it seems like to me anyway, as, as the story plays out, that it's this staff of understanding that really helps Nubia find common ground with Medusa. And I, I certainly think it's an, an original and an interesting idea to have Medusa become an Amazon. Like, I mean, we're not talking about some new DC character, you know, or recent DC character. Like we're talking about Medusa, right? Like the idea of Medusa, the story of Medusa is thousands and thousands of years old, you know, from Greek mythology. And she's all, you just hear the name Medusa and you just think somebody evil, somebody bad, you know, snakes for hair and turning people to stone. And so I like that Aletha Martinez and uh, Vidal are flipping that idea on its head here. And again, leaning into those ideas that we got early on in the series about like redemption and people, uh, women um, that have died in, in man's world and are reborn on the island of Themyscira, getting a second chance. That's a big theme in this issue. Um, and it sort of doesn't matter what your past is as long as you're willing to walk the path of redemption and atone for the mistakes that you've made or the people that you've hurt. And so that's a, that's a big theme in this issue. Uh, and kind of going parallel with that is this idea of Nubia herself getting some redemption and growing into that role of uh, leadership. So it'll be really interesting to see exactly what goes on with Trial of the Amazons. Will Nubia be still the queen of the Amazons on the other side of it? Will Hippolyta take, retake the throne? Will we see more of Nubia? Like all that remains to be seen. But uh, I thought this was a really solid issue. I thought the artwork from Aletha Martinez was strong throughout. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting the, uh, the trial of the Amazons. I, I think I'm a, almost a little more excited for that than I am the Aquaman series, just because I, I, I think that the sort of Amazonian corner of the DC universe is underutilized in a lot of ways uh, and, and less developed than some of the other stuff. So it has, there's more potential there for a great story. And I think Stephanie Phillips and Vidal are very good storytellers and I know they're heavily involved. So uh, we'll see how it all plays out. What'd you think Rock of uh, Nubia and the Amazons five? Well, uh, I'm going to, first I'm going to pat myself on the back uh, and, uh, and with no qualification because I did call it. And, uh, and while I thought this, uh, I predicted it right. And, but while it wasn't necessarily obvious, I did predict that Medusa was going to become an Amazon because it, 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 it's in keeping with the Amazonian tradition of, uh, and the well of souls of, of women who were victimized, uh, being resurrected through the well of souls on Paradise Island where they can redeem themselves and seek redemption. And ultimately that's what happens with Medusa here. There's a couple of plot points and story points where I could, I can nitpick a little bit. I thought it was, I, I thought it was really good how Vida L and Stephanie Williams connected uh, to the first issue. In the first issue, the uh, Nubia's patron goddesses gave her the gift of understanding and they told her that you will understand with, that you will learn what that means. Yeah. At, you know, in due course. And cause I was wondering, well, what does that even mean? You, we, I was even questioning it when we reviewed it. What the hell does that mean? The gift of understanding. I mean, and then here, it's the it's it's that gift of understanding which was channeled through Io's weapon that she built for Nubia, uh, Io being uh, Nubia's lover, uh, built built her the weapon and the patron goddess is gifting the weapon that staff of understanding and it's that understanding that Nubia takes with her where she utilizes her understanding to to uh, come to the realization that Medusa is essentially a victim. Now, this is 
there's some, uh, th- this is uh, political, it's philosophical, it's uh, dealing with an historical wrong, it's dealing with an historical controversy. As I've said before, Medusa, it's hard to imagine, in, in many ways, Medusa is, it was, it was one of the worst, uh, one of the most evil creatures of, of Greek mythology, but she was also the victim of Athena's wrath, of Athena's jealousy. Athena both cursed Medusa, but as Medusa herself, herself says in this issue, that Athena did curse me, but she also, but it was also a blessing in that what she cursed me with, she cursed me to be with the have a being with the the snake for snakes for hair and the, and the stone glare through the eyes that gave Medusa the strength to endure the torment uh, that was contained within Doom's doorway and it's interesting that that at the end somehow Nubia was able to they were in Doom's doorway Medusa didn't enter Themyscira and, and she she was made human again, but she didn't seem to go through the well of souls. She came back through Doom's doorway. So I find that kind of interesting because I, to me, there's a difference between the well of souls and Doom's doorway. They're two very different things. And yet Medusa didn't come back to Themyscira through the well of souls. She came back through Doom's doorway. It was almost through the staff of understanding that Nubia sort of helped transform Medusa back into her human form. And then all the Amazons that Medusa changed to stone went back and they, they were essentially healed and cured. Now, the question is, this is causing some some controversy and some discussions and arguments among, amongst the other Amazons because they're wondering now if the Well of Souls is corrupted. Because if if somebody as potentially as bad as Medusa was, if she can find redemption, then... Where do you draw the line? I mean, she was pretty evil, wasn't she? If Medusa, if Medusa can die or whatever, or or die or somehow come back through the well of souls, then I'm wondering, like, this is how my mind works. I'm thinking, well, what about if there's ever any female supervillains that are killed? Are they going to come back on Paradise Island? Should should super villainesses come back and be redeemed through Paradise Island? Is is everybody? Is redemption, is atonement something that everyone can can aspire to after they die, no matter how evil they might be, simply on the grounds that they were victims at one time? I mean, it's, Sure, it's why a, not? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's an interesting thing. Well, well, here's, here, here's, here's the thing that it leans into, right? Something I, I – so I, I personally don't like that idea, but we, we certainly see – and this isn't unique to DC – we certainly see every villain – at some point becoming an anti-hero, right? So yeah. DZ could give them their own diet. Like Black Manta, you know, I talked about how, no, Black Manta's a bad guy. Don't make them, try to make them sympathetic. Sometimes it's okay to just leave bad guys, bad guys. Yeah. And, and I, I, my, I like the my, fact, but building on your point, it's an open question at the end of this issue is that, is Medusa ultimately set to betray the Amazons? You know, because- Yeah, I, I yeah there's a little, too, little yeah. hints. There's some hints there because I, I say again, I find it curious that Medusa technically came back to in her human form while she was in Doom's doorway. She never she never came back through the Well of Souls. And I'm wondering yeah. if that distinction matters or maybe if I just misread it. In any event, I enjoyed it. I, I love I like the characterization of Nubia. I know that uh, Nubia's past history in the 1970s, their last issue, it showed her past in the 1970s where she met and- Andromeda's former human self. and. Yep. Uh, this this series, uh, I want to give some credit to Vidal and Stephanie Williams. They weren't afraid to delve into the the relationships, the same sex relationships here. They really embraced it, and I think it it works well. These are Amazons. I mean, you you fully expect that, 
and and I expect Nubia to be an alpha female and act as such. And you know, I expect that I expect some of that to be embraced, and it was here. I thought it was a little exposition heavy throughout. I thought that I was a little choppy in some of the narrative and the way things were, but for the most part, I understood what was going on. I I, I love the fact that I was that. I love the use of Medusa. I love the idea of the Well of Souls. I think it's inspired to bring that back again because it's such a great concept. And I think it's timely. I think it fits even with our, our current, well, frankly, our current re- real world here about the idea of atonement and redemption and about overcoming pack, past that we don't all have to remain victims and that, you know, that that Amazon Amazons stand for, for coming back from victimhood. I mean, I think that there's some positive messages here that can come from this. And overall, I'm looking forward to see where this takes us uh, going into Trial of the Amazons. Yeah, the only the only thing that I'll I think about as far as Medusa, because I, I, I thought the same thing you did. I'm like, is she really reformed? Is she really trying to to be a hero or, or you know, do the right thing? Or, you know, maybe she just wants to end hundreds of years of torment, if not thousands of years. Like that all rings true to me. But at the same time, the other thing that I think is this entire thing, this entire storyline that we've seen in Nubia and the Amazons could totally be a setup from somebody like Ares. You know, this could all be something because we've seen stories like that before in in the Wonder Woman mythos. So I guess we'll I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens with Trial of the Amazon. So that's right. Uh, All right. Up next, we have uh, Tom Taylor book, Nightwing, number 89. This is World's Finest Sons, part one of two, uh, written by the aforementioned Tom Taylor, Bruno Redondo on art, Adriana Lucas does the colors, Wes Abbott on letters. Um, yeah, this was interesting. What did you think, Rocky? I, I thought this was, uh, this was very, you know what, this was very, very typical uh, Tom Taylor. And if, uh, you know, uh, Tom Taylor is, he's so good at the fan service and this really had a lot of fan service because once again, this just shows it's another comic book showing how amazing Dick Grayson is. And there's, there's moments here that, you know, it starts off with a moment in the past where, where a young John Kent, when he was still the, the super son that we all wish he still was, or many of us still kind of miss that 10 year old John Kent. There was a time when he was just gaining his powers where he actually got lost. He flew too far and he got lost and the entire justice league is looking for him and Batman and, and uh, Dick Grayson uh, when he was Nightwing, they, they find John Kent, a 10 year old John Kent. And he's, he's in a, he's in a cave that he, that he, hollered out with his heat vision and it's it's dick grayson that talks him out of the cave and and you know he and he's better at talking to someone uh, at, to to young kids better than certainly batman is and there's just great uh great moments where you know batman you know was at wondering what happened at one point and dick grayson's you know is telling him my god he's hiding in a cave and a giant bat just showed up i mean you know don't, don't be so obtuse and it's you know, the, the, it again. Tom Taylor is really good at showing those moments of why Dick Grayson. I mean, even before Tom Taylor took over Nightwing, everybody knows that the nicest guy in the DC universe is Dick Grayson, or or certainly he's in the top five. And and there's there's just great moments here, and just heartfelt moments where Superman is so relieved to find his young son. And Dick Grayson taking a lollipop out of Batman's uh, utility belt, and and the, the lollipop is close to his gas pellets, and 
you know, even the humor about, you know, Superman, you know, telling, you know, making the joke to Batman that the next time he tries to disappear in front of the Joker, he's going to accidentally throw lollipops at the Joker instead of gas pellets. And I mean, there was, there was the dialogue here was excellent. It was heartfelt. And again, it's, it's just typical Tom King. And it's the type of writing that those of us who love uh, Tom Taylor, we, we just love that. We love his writing. Now, at the same time, his the blessing of Tom Taylor's writing can also be the curse a little bit because as much as I love these character moments and these callbacks, part of me kind of wants the story to move forward a little bit more. And uh, so it's, it's a double-edged sword to me, but damn, he's so damn good at these moments. <laughs> it's uh, here I am. I'm trying to be constructively critical, but damn it. Some of these moments just put a, a nice smile on my face and they're so heartfelt and this embodies the type of hope and the stuff and the, and the, and the love and the, and the camaraderie that we want our DC heroes to have. And so what am I doing? I mean, I, 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 I get what I want and then I find some reason to, 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 to bitch about it. Shame on me. But there's really good moments here. A good moment where an older John Kent talks to, uh, talks to his father uh, at the Fortress of Solitude. It's sort of like a holographic version of himself that his dad left him before he went off to War World in case something happened to him. And John Kent, you know, he's, he's right now he's hurting a little bit because he feels because of the events of last issue where he, you know, him and, uh, and Jackson Hyde stopped that sea creature from sort of, uh, you know, inadvertently destroying Metropolis. And there was the Gamora Corps and a, a member of the Gamora Corps was killed and all due to the machinations of John Bendix, uh, in implementing the, the rising in, 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 uh, working with, uh, Lex Luthor. And so he's, you know, he's John Kent is hurting right now, and even we have to remember John. At least Tom Taylor does a good job of implying to the audience that look, I know that this is an older John Kent who's now a Superman, but maybe there are still aspects of him where he's still an insecure. He's insecure at times because he maybe still is ten years old at heart in some ways, and he needs some guidance. And I love how you know Keelix from the Fortress of Solitude comes in and basically tells and shows up in Bloodhaven uh, with uh, with uh, Dick Grayson and uh, Barbara Gordon in the same bed. Hoo ha! Good, I like that little uh, little hint there. Uh, basically saying, "Look, I mean, John Kent, he needs your help." And I love his pajamas. He's even he wears bat pajamas. I mean. All these little things that you could tell Bruno Redondo, artist Bruno Redondo, you can tell he's having a lot of fun drawing this. Facial expressions are excellent. Barbara Gordon looks, she looks absolutely gorgeous, beautiful redhead. I mean, wow. And, and I love her Teen Titans Go shirt. I mean, from the Teen Titans Go shirt to the Batman pajama pants on Dick Grayson. I mean, all these things put a little shit-eating grin on my face. And of course, you got Batmite, or I'm sorry, not Batmite, Bite, Bite Wing as the, the dog or... What 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 do they call him again? Uh, <laughs> Halley, as Sorry, in Halley Circus. Halley yeah. Circus, that's right. Yeah, but I I quite liked it. I it's funny. There there's a there's a the Gamora Corps shows up and the members of the Gamora Corps kill a, a, a former Titan by the known of by the known as as, as Damage in this issue. And I actually quite like Damage. Damage had his arm. Ripped I think it's off. not. I don't think it's Damage. I think it's Risk. Oh, Risk. Sorry, Risk. Yeah, uh, he yeah. was. Yeah, sorry, Risk. And he, but Risk had his arm ripped off by Superboy Prime back, and I think it was an Infinite Crisis. And the guy just he, he's almost like he's constantly a victim. You know, first he lost his yeah. arm, and now he's a throwaway victim here. Uh, the fact that I. 
I, the fact that I called him the wrong name tells you he's probably expendable. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of, and of course he is. He, uh, but the detective work that that Dick Grayson does with John Kent as they figure out maybe what's going on, it's it's just well done. And even the quiet moments that that not a big deal is made out of it, a, a kiss shared between John and Jay uh, on a balcony and their conversation. I mean, it's 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 well done. It's done with taste. It's done it's done very well. Again, facial expressions are great. Jay even teases him a little bit, teases him that, that truth is really run by Lex Luthor. And of course it isn't, but he, you know, he teases him a bit. And it even, I think, takes a pot shot at us readers a little bit. And uh, again, I thought this was just, this is really well done. And I, I enjoyed it. And I'm really looking forward to where, it's, where it is moving forward. Uh, minor criticism, I know that we... I know that Clark Kent wears glasses and nobody knows it's Clark Kent, but, but seeing, seeing John Kent wear a mask, uh, it, it looks ridiculous. He's, he looks, he looks like John Kent. So I think it, I still think that's ridiculous for John Kent to, to wear a mask, but I guess it is what it is. Not surprisingly, Dick Grayson actually has to tell John that, Hey man, I know it's you. And by the way, you might want to disguise your voice. I mean, I, I can't believe John John thought that he could just wear a mask and not have to disguise his voice. I, a couple of things there I thought John Kent, I mean, I don't think he's, I don't, I can't think John Kent is that dumb, but, you know, <laughs> but anyways, uh, again, maybe a minor nitpick. Great, great moments here though. Just really good character moments. Very well done. Beautifully laid out by Bruno Redondo. I enjoyed this. And, uh, you know, the one thing about this series, uh, it, it's, it's an easy read. It's enjoyable. It's got great character work, and that's what keeps pulling me back is just the, the character work. So I have to say, I think that there's shortcomings in the plot. The plot isn't really pulling me in, but goddamn, the character work just keeps me coming back for more. Yeah, I, I don't mind the plot necessarily. Um, it's almost a character work where I think there's a few things here and there because I do agree with you about John Kent. Like a couple of, th- couple of things. Yeah, the, the mass thing. Like, really? You're supposed to be smart, and you, you have to have Dick Grayson tell you you can't just put on a domino mask. <laughs> you look the same, dude. Like, even if you hadn't opened your mouth, he would have known it was you. And also, he's gotten pretty close to this Jay Nakamura guy. And when Nakamura says, oh, Lex Luthor's funding truth, like, he, wh- why would you buy that even for a second, knowing what you know of truth and of Jay Nakamura? Like, <laughs> the look on his face, like, oh no, truth is funded by Lex. No, you you immediately go, no, you're messing with me. Like, why would you even think that, even for a split second? Well, well would you know. think that Lex Luthor funds Batman Incorporated? <laughs> I'd buy that more than <laughs> than true. funding truth. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm just yeah. Uh, the the other just minor nitpick I had, I, I felt like the Bruno Redondo art in the the first part of the story. Mm-hmm. The kind of the flashback version wasn't as as tight or as clean as the rest of the issue, but maybe he's trying to use a little bit of a different style to show that it's a flashback. I, I wasn't really sure because the rest of the issue I I, I love the art, um, so I don't know. But again, just just some minor some minor nitpicks. <clears throat> like you said, the uh, the humor is fantastic. I love when uh, Kelix wakes, you know, surprises. Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon and, and Dick just immediately grabs one of his sticks and throws it at Calix and he goes, Mr. Grayson, you dropped this fast in my direction. <laughs> like, you know, as a like, yeah, you dro- here you go, you dropped this when you threw it at me in an attack. Um, 
So I thought that was really, really funny. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing that I'll say, because I echo a lot of what you said, this is a really good series. The art's, you know, overall fantastic. The color work's really, really good. But yeah, if I have any sort of uh, nitpick about the, the pacing of the story, it's that early on we got so many hints about uh, Dick Grayson taking on Blockbuster and his sister and the kind of the more street-level corruption stuff going on in Bloodhaven. But then ever since the Fear State crossover, we haven't touched that at all. His sister hasn't shown up. We did see Blockbuster last issue when he sent some assassins to kill uh, Dick Grayson. So that's fine. But we, it hasn't felt like that part of the story has moved forward because we got a bunch of Fear State, I think three Fear State issues. And then we got that special, you know, one long panel issue, which was cool, even if it did feel, you know, a little gimmicky. It was super awesome. And then we got the assassination issue, last issue. Now we're getting a team up. It's like, I want to get back to those, uh, the guy that was stealing people's hearts and the, the plot line with his sister. Because those feel unresolved to me. Not that, you know, they have to be all wrapped up in a bow in one arc, but they haven't even been touched on. So, uh, I, I, and I'm just curious. It, I, in a way, it's a backhanded compliment because I, Tom Taylor set those stories up so well that I want, you know, I want more of that, of those uh, plot threads. So, um, but I'm, I'm curious how this is going to wind up. It, it feels like based on how much story we got here, that this would take more than just one more issue to wrap up, but apparently it's only a two parter. The second part of the story is going to be in uh, Superman, son of Kal-El number nine. So we'll see how that goes in a, in a few weeks. Uh, okay, up next we have Superman, uh, Supergirl, rather, Woman of Tomorrow, number eight. This is the final issue of the series. Tom King is the writer. Bill Chris Evely is the artist. Mateus Lopez on colors. Uh, the art in this series throughout has been absolutely excellent. And this was uh, a fitting ending to the story. But what was interesting about it was it almost feels... I, I don't want to say predictable. I'm going to use the word appropriate. Everything that happened in the series basically showed or could have predicted what the final outcome was. You know, we saw uh, Ruthie at the end of last issue f figure out a way to get Crypto or, or uh, a Comet, rather, the Super Horse, to go help Supergirl, made a promise to him I won't hurt Creme of the Yellow Hills, go help Supergirl. Um, and then saying something like, hey, it's easy to lie to a horse, right? But then ultimately at the end of the day, she doesn't kill Cram of the Yellow Hills because of everything that she's learned along the way, which was the entire point, even to the point where Supergirl makes this confession like, like yeah, crypto's fine. I, I, you know, I'm Supergirl. I could have saved him at any point. He's in the hands of the best veterinarian in, in space. This, this whole entire journey, all the time I've spent with you, has all been because I needed to show you how to be the best you and that you shouldn't kill and, and that sort of thing. So ultimately it's the series doesn't end with some great big twist or great big revelation. This series, if anything really epitomizes the idea of uh, it's more about the journey than the destination, because really everything that has happened in the series leading up to the ending 
uh, is just as important, if not more important than the resolution that we get. Um, and then to top it all off, we almost get a little epilogue where we see Ruthie as she is now. And maybe this is a little bit in the future because when Kara shows up with crypto, she's wearing a more futuristic kind of costume. And we find out that uh, instead of killing Krem of the Yellow Hills, they sent him into uh, the Phantom Zone where he was for many, many years and his, his sentence is over and they let him out. But what I wasn't clear on, and maybe you can clear it up for me, Rocky, mm-hmm. is the kind of the captions. Because at one point, um, so we, we learned that Ruthie had written everything down in this book, and that's the story that we've been reading. Um, but then she says to uh, she says to uh, Supergirl at one point, I, she, Supergirl says, I liked your book. And she said, yeah, you know – that fictitious fiddle faddle. Sorry, I had to waste your time. I don't know why I wrote it in the first place. Maybe I should have told what really happened if I had any guts at all. I'm like, wait, so what, wait, what really happened? Did they actually kill Krem of the Yellow Hills? Well, no, because they put him in the Phantom Zone. So what part of the story that we read was true and what part wasn't? And then when they do pull Krem of the Yellow Hills out of the Phantom Zone, she like clocks him in the head with her cane and then it says something about uh, Supergirl moved her sword swiftly through the air and stabbed down and through the chest of the kneeling brigand, the, the kneeling creme of the Yellow Hills. And after it was done, she returned the bloody blade to my hand. So did did they kill him or not? Like I wasn't I – was, I was unclear on that. But it doesn't appear so because he was in the Phantom Zone. So I, I don't know. Maybe it's Tom King not being able to help himself and having to go and be a little ambiguous in, in the end. Um, so ultimately, it was a good story, uh, and it leaned into the best things about Supergirl. And uh, this will be uh, like a must-read for Supergirl fans from this day forward, in my mind. What do you think? Uh, I thought this was I thought this was excellent. Uh, I thought this was uh, this ending, as you said. As And this is very typical Tom King, and this is the type of ending that either frustrates the hell out of some fans or, you know, or or makes them just uh, smile. I mean, it's it reminds me a little bit of the ending of uh, Mr. Miracle and that, you know, did, you know, did Mr. Miracle uh, kill himself? Was he still alive? Was the entire 12 issue series a dream? Uh, this here, though, it's sort of the same thing. Supergirl is a legend. Kara is a legend, just like Superman is. And so... How much of it is story? How much of what Supergirl did here at the end? Did she kill him? Did she? I think we all know Kara well enough to know that Kara is not a killer. And But at the same time, the legend of what she stands for sort of stands out. And we're getting a little bit of both. We're getting it through the eyes of Ruthie. And Ruthie, from the very beginning, was filled with vengeance. But it was also very clear here that Kara knew that Ruthie was full of vengeance. But uh, Kara, Kara went embarked on this entire mission for Ruthie because she saw herself in Ruth, in Ruthie. She didn't want, just like Kara at one point in a very poignant scene, at least for myself reading it, was when Kara said that, I didn't want you, Ruthie, to go through your entire life and still think of Krem of Yellow Hills. And then she thinks, but I, like, I still think of Krypton. And there's a tragedy to that. Kara was doing this for Ruthie. And at the same time, 
you know, there was still punishment for Krim of Yellow Hills. Krim repeatedly told Ruthie while he's battling Ruthie and, and he's trying to psychologically get into Ruthie's head, talking about how, how you know, her, her father was useless. He, he was a rock farmer. He, he died for nothing, you know, and all that hard work he did and what. And then his life just ended. And I, I ended it with, but, a, you know, I killed him. It was over. And yet at the end, Krem, if you, if you view this ending as Krem dying, Krem spends two, three hundred years in the Phantom Zone where he ages. A little bit of a continuity glitch. You're not supposed to age in the Phantom Zone, but that's Tom King's continuity. But uh, in any event, uh, Krem of Yellow Hills ages. And then when he comes out, he's finally redeemed and he's atoned and he he's, appears to be a better man. And then Ruthie kills him. <laughs> but... I'm I'm inclined to think that uh, that Ruthie that he's not actually dead, although it does look like he's he, there's a lot of blood splatter that she basically killed him. If Ruthie did, it's clear that Supergirl, you know, she she let Ruthie make that call, and uh, Supergirl clearly is not losing any any sleep over it. I think no matter how you interpret the story, I think that this was Supergirl letting Ruthie control the end control the the end of her story this was about ruthie's uh closure how ruthie dealt with creme of yellow hills and this was ruthie's story to end and an old ruthie decides to do what she did with creme of yellow hills and it's up to the reader to decide well if all the Krim went through all that 300 years of jail he finally paid his dues and then he comes out and he gets killed anyway well that's kind of pointless well, so was the, and if that seems cruel, it was equally cruel for Krem of Yellow Hills to kill her father. And so isn't that poetic justice for Krem of Yellow Hills? On the other hand, you could also interpret it another way. The bottom line is, is that Ruthie has her closure, regardless of how you view this ending uh, in many ways. And Supergirl did exactly what she accomplished to do. Supergirl made a friend and she... And Ruthie had, you get the impression that Ruthie's had a good life, a long life. She's an old lady and she's had a, you know, she's been a rock farmer like her father. And, and everything is as, as it should be. And, you know, the one tragedy of all this is Comet actually dies. The horse actually dies. Comet, which I, which I thought was really sad, but I thought I, I really, I enjoyed this. I, I'm still actually going through in my mind how to interpret this ending. But I think it I think it works really well. There's so many ways there's this entire series was so riddled with with metaphor and nuance and, and theme. And I, I think this should be nominated for an Eisner in my mind. I, I enjoyed this series that much. I'm buying this as a hardcover form. I really enjoyed this because no matter how you interpret this ending, I think this this is this is really, really good. Uh, like I said, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I didn't take it as her killing him when she whacked him. I took it, you know, he, he comes out of the Phantom Zone. He's begging her. He's even saying, I beg you, forgive me. I beg you, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. She's just trying to shut him up. She, she's never going to forgive him. So she whacks him with her cane, turns her back on him. And, I, you know, as he's laying there on the ground, he's holding his head. So it's making me think that he's, you know, still alive. Maybe still alive. Yeah. It was more about, yeah, like why why is she saying that, that Supergirl stabbed him way back when, when we were seeing him in the phantom zone. So I don't know. I'll have to have Tom on the show and be like, dude, <laughs> probably off the record. Cause he doesn't like to, he likes people to pull their own. Their own ideas uh, meet, it, yeah. yeah. Their own ideas from, from his ending. So, 
Uh, okay, up next we have Detective Comics number 1053, The Tower Part 7 from writer Mariko Tamaki. Max Rayner does the art, Luis Guerrero on colors, Ariana Mare on letters. And then we have uh, the backup as well that's written by uh, Matthew Rosenberg. The art is by Fernando Blanco. We have colors by Jordi Belair and letters by Rob Lee. So uh, starting with the main story, Rocky, what'd you think? Uh, I continue to enjoy this. I, you know, like I said, I think Marika Tamaki is doing a fine job. I, you know, things are continuing to build to, build to, uh, you know, I think, I think this, I think we're at day 21 here. We know day 24 is when Arkham Tower, where the shit hits the fan and Dr. Ware is, or, and and Dr. Tobias Ware is going to be thrown in from the building and killed. And we're still, we're still getting there. And, it's clear here that doc, uh, things are catching up with Tobias. Things are falling apart. He's got a he owes money to the uh, to the gangs of Gotham for for the for the for the numbing for the numb drug. He owes money to the Penguin, and and he still hasn't gotten his funding from the mayor because he still hasn't got a, approved yet. Because there's still some question as to whether or not the treatment is effective. Because there's been a number of incidences uh, invo- involving a Psycho Pirate that Psycho Pirate has managed to cover up. Uh, fortunately, but the fact of the matter is, is that uh, Nightwing and, and Oracle and and Batwoman and and Cassandra, K- they're on to him, and 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 they suspect something. And even the Huntress, I mean, the Psycho Pirates' hold is beginning to wear off on the on the patients at at Arkham, and they're beginning to piece things together. And and in the meantime, uh, in the meantime. Uh, all, all Tobias can do is hope he's hoping that he can get funding sooner rather than later. Nightwing goes undercover again as as, as basically a, a janitor trying to piece things together, and he's he's very clearly he's beginning to see that uh, he's beginning to see that a lot of the patients are injured, and he even speaks to uh, uh, Helena, the huntress, and he notices right away blood stain under her bed. And she wrote in her own handwriting in blood, his hold is breaking. And so they're wondering whose hold are they talking about? And and I'm really glad to see that the Bat family wasn't that stupid. They right away thought of telepaths, mind control. And right away they go through the usual suspects, Maxwell, Lord, Desper- Despero, uh, Gorilla Grodd. And I uh, note that Psycho Pirate's not on, on that list. But uh, I think, you know, eventually they're they're going to get there. And, you know, I like this. It's, it, it, again, it's a uh, good job building up the tension. It's, I, the, the issue ends. It's, it's actually, I find very fast paced. So the story is, this is, I think, going to read very well in trade. I kind of like this. I kind of like the fact that it comes out every week because I like the fact that, <laughs> that I can remember you know, because we read so many comics, you and I, sometimes even the two week difference between comics, I, I forget or I forget points. But having this come out every week, it feels frenetically paced and, and action packed. And here this series ends with uh, Nightwing, you know, walking in on Psycho Pirate. And, you know, he gets there and he goes of F and course. You can just see what he's saying. And of course, Psycho Pirate uses his powers to freeze Nightwing. And uh, things are Things are building to a uh, a hilt, and of course we got the gangs uh, underneath underneath the tower. We got the um, 
the uh, street gang, uh, you know, trying to take out the Bat family. And, you know, again, this is part seven. And it's funny, it doesn't feel like it's part seven already yet. I can't believe this has been seven parts, but I'm, I'm enjoying this. I, you know, I love the art. Uh, Max Rayner on the art, great. Uh, colors were popped off the page. I, I'm enjoying this. I find this, I find this much more enjoyable than I did Fear State because it's action packed. I, I like the use of Psycho Pirate. I like the, I like the, Marika Tamaki does a good job handling all these characters. Uh, she handles them surprisingly well. And I'm having fun with this. And I'm, I'm actually, even though we kind of know how this ends, I'm, I'm suspecting we're going to get some misdirection before this is all over. And I, uh, you know, I'm enjoying this. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I like it too. I do find it interesting. I think the way that it's paced and the amount of um, story we get in each issue, I don't know that it would work if this was coming out monthly. But, you know, to your point of this being part seven, I can't believe we're already on part seven. So we're seven weeks in. Could you imagine the same amount of story over seven months? I might feel a little more frustrated saying, God, can we get there already? But I feel like Mariko Tamaki is taking perfect advantage. Maybe this is the reason they decided to go weekly with it. Or maybe she, you know, knowing they wanted to do a weekly Batman event, she structured it this way, you know, pacing wise to say, okay, this is how much story we're going to do in each issue. And it'll be okay because this, this often happens when it's a weekly series. I feel like you only get about three quarters of the story that you get in a regular monthly issue. Uh, and maybe that's just my own personal thing, but it's 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 a fast-paced kind of uh, story, right? And that's why you usually you won't get the same artist on, on all the books either. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it is really, really working, and uh, I'm enjoying the aspects of the story uh, as this mystery starts to unfold and seeing Nightwing, you know, confront Psycho Pirate, seeing him there going, oh, of course it's Psycho Pirate. Who else would it be? Uh, I enjoyed that. Uh, I, I nitpicked a little bit on Max Rainer's art last issue. I mean, it's hard to follow Yvonne Reese uh, for anybody. Um, but I did feel like Max Rainer's uh, rendering and line work improved from last issue to this issue. Uh, his style just felt a little cleaner and a little tighter uh, in this one. So I, I thought the art was, was absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, overall, I agree. I've said before. You don't you don't miss Batman at all. The fact that Batman is not in Detective Comics right now, you, he's not missed whatsoever, because Mariko Tamaki is keeping the momentum of the story going. Um, and in fact, this particular issue, the vast majority of it takes place outside the walls of, of Arkham Tower. You know, we're in the courtroom, we're in the streets of Gotham, we're under the streets of Gotham. Uh, other than the scenes with Nightwing, we're not really in Arkham Tower. And, and you don't really notice. Like, that's how fast-paced and how perfectly structured the story is. As far as the backup goes, uh, I don't know. I'm starting to feel like it's dragging a little bit. Uh, I'm still invested. I still want to know who the heck this kid is. Um, at the end, Bane shows up. So, you know, it seems like Bane's going to be taking him under his, his wing. <laughs> I, I can't say that I think that's a good thing. Um, so... Whether or not this kid ends up being Nero or Bane ends up just killing him or, or like I, I have no idea. I have no idea where this story is going um, at this point. But 
I, I'm not taking it as a good sign that Bane has has showed up. So I guess we'll have to, to wait and see. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's interesting because this, this kid, this redhead kid, seems to he's gotten influence from the Penguin. He's gotten influence from Bane. He gets attacked by, I think, Zaz in this issue. At one point, Bane even has him attack, has, has him fight Zaz. <laughs> in fact, Zaz goes to actually kill the kid at one point, And Bane says, no, you, you can't beat up a kid. It's unfair that you have a knife and he doesn't. And so he says, you know, drop the knife. And so he makes this kid fight Zaz. I mean... Uh, I mean, Bane, Bane is just about hardcore. He's, he's trying to get this kid to embrace his fear and to, you know, embrace his fear and don't be afraid to blame Gotham and stand up for yourself and, and really hardcore learning that this kid has. And like you, I'm wondering now where this is going exactly. At first, I thought this kid was going to grow up and we were going to see this kid as maybe a future sidekick or a future protege of Penguin. But no, that's not the case. Uh is he going to be a product of all the people of of Arkham Asylum or maybe it's just some of the inmates? I'm wondering where this is going. I'm wondering where this sort of future villain's journey as opposed to hero's journey, this, this journey that this kid is on, this young kid, this young kid who cannot distinguish between costume heroes, according to Do- Dr. Quinzel at the in the first chapter here. You know, how is this kid's psyche going to develop and what type of person is he going to develop into? Is this a young Nero? I, we don't think it is, but, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to where, how this kid's going to end up. Now, it this particular backup, it ends with this kid meeting up again with Elliot, uh, who was his, who was a, a one of his uh, earlier schoolhood friends that Elliot worked with him, with the Penguin. And you got to wonder... You know he, you know where the, where this is going to go again. I mean, this kid has escaped, but what? This is odd. Like Matthew Rosenberg has a plan here. I mean, you know, he knows where this is going. But I gotta, I gotta give Matt Rosenberg credit because I feel like we've been there's been some misdirections, effective misdirections on on with these chapters so far in a good way. Because I'm genuinely invested as to who the hell this kid is and who is this kid going to end up being. So uh, well done by Matthew Rosenberg. Yeah, I agree. And maybe when I say um, it's dragging, maybe it's I'm just I'm ready for my answer. <laughs> you know, it's not that it's <laughs> not that Matthew Rosenberg is not doing it. It's just I can't figure it out. You know, so maybe I'm, we'll find out who it is. And if it's somebody that we should know, we'll probably be like kicking ourselves going, God, how did we not realize it was so obvious? Um, all right. Moving on. Uh, next up, we have Flash number 779 from writer Jeremy Adams. The art is by Fernando Passerin and Matt Ryan, uh, joined by Brent Peebles. Jeremiah Skipper and Pete Pantazeus do the colors, along with Jeremy Cox, Rob Lee on the letters. Uh, this is the final part of Vengeance is Mine, which has been the uh, Gemworld uh, story that's been going on for the last few months in Flash. So what do you think, Rock? Oh man, I I love this, and I'm not just saying that because I do have a bias because I really like Jeremy Adams, and I I direct everyone back to the the, the interview that uh, you were nice enough to let me join you on when uh, you, you you interviewed Jeremy Adams. 
the guy has a passion for this character and it shows. And there's a reason why, you know, just as somebody who uh, enjoys watching other YouTubers give their opinions, even people who aren't necessarily big fans of the overall direction of DC, they almost universally love The Flash. In fact, even a naysayer for DC will invariably say, except for The Flash, DC is whatever, you know. <laughs> now, because people just love The Flash. And this show is here. I love this issue because we got we, we got the we got the Jay and Irie. Uh, Jay is, uh, has connected to the Speed Force from Irie. Uh, Maxine Baker, of course, reveals herself as basically Animal Girl, that her father is, in fact, uh, Buddy Baker, Animal Man. And you can, and I love that the, I love what the, uh, the artist does here. Um, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, is it Passerin? Who is it? The artist? Well, there's multiple, there's multiple pa oh, Passerin and yeah. Passerin uh, with pencils and Matt Ryan inking him. And then Brent Peebles right. does some pages on his own. Yeah. Uh, well, kudos to the, uh, I should give a shout out to the, uh, Black History Month, uh, cover with, uh, with Wallace West on it. It looks fantastic. But uh, in any event, I love I love scenes with Maxine Baker here before she reveals she's animal girl girl. You can see that in in red shadow, you can see she's accessing powers, some animal powers there when she can sense other people with other people nearby. And anyways, it's it's very well done. Oh, got to speak of daughter. Good night. Good night. Kissing my daughter goodnight. We always do this at the right time. So in any event, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was my own daughter. She's an animal girl sometimes as well. But in any event, uh, I love that. Uh, I love that Jay and Irie, they can, they can sense where their dad is through the force and they end up on gem world and they take Maxine with them. And what's great about this is, you know, and, and maybe it's just cause I'm a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a father, but I, and, uh, and Jeremy Adams is a father, you're a father, and we have daughters. But man, I just love the fact that, you know, it's w Wally West ends up, his kids come to his rescue. <laughs> and, 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 and there, this is action packed. They come to his rescue and they, and all the members of Justice League Dark are possessed by Eclipso. And they're taking out some pretty big leaguers here. And, and, having fun doing it. I mean, and, and even, even Maxine Baker, you know, forms of a, the, utilizes the power of a, what looks to be like a giant polar bear or something when she, when she takes off, uh, when she, when she deals with dark, dark opal, just really well done. Uh, you know, uh, and Maxine Baker, just the, the dialogue as well, that they, they talk like kids, they're excited. And and they want to help their dad, and 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 Jay and wants to help his dad, and but he's in pain, and you know he's in pain because he's accessed the force, he's access too much, to, he's accessed too much of the speed force, and he couldn't utilize it before, and then there's the glaive, and Dark Opal basically basically tells Flash, you know, you can do this, you can, you you, you can defeat them, but it's going to require teamwork, and it's the teamwork between the whole family. This is the Wally West, you know, the Wally West family winning the day. And, and I love it. And, uh, just, just so well done. Uh, this just, just put a smile on my face and, and there's a, there's a fantastic double page sequence and you can only see part of it on the screen where Wally West is basically telling his kids, look, I'm going to count to 10, you go and you pave the way. And he counts to 10 and for each time he says a, a, a number, one, two, three, there, there's a panel of all the stuff that, 
that his all the things that his kids are doing and his kids are battling Justice League Dark and they're waiting for his kids to pass to, to, to clear a path and when he gets to ten he takes off and it's just like a race like a countdown to a race and a takeoff and a blast off this is so well done and 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 the other thing is you know despite all the artists on this title. I really enjoyed this. I didn't feel there wasn't, I didn't feel I was taken out of this story because of the multiple artists. I enjoyed this. I, I love the, there, there was a kinetic energy and a, the, an electric, an, an electric feeling and a speed force feeling, which of course there should be because it's a flash comic. I, I, I quite enjoyed this. And I like the fact that the, the connection that Eclipso has, because Eclipso is trying to connect to the core of gem world in order to power up. And uh, access to darker forces. And remember, we know Eclipso is likely going to be one of the darker forces that is going to be connected to the great darkness that will be, you know, a part of Dark Crisis at some point. But at least for now, he his machinations are are thrown off basically because of Wally West and the kids. I mean, they, they win the day. Wally West saves the day. And at the end, uh, the Spectre shows up. I mean, we, we even get the Spectre in this comic. And it doesn't seem out of whack. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's great. And in fact, there's even a, a, you know, the Spectre even references God here about, you know, about the Spectre actually tells Wally West that he is pleased with you, actually referencing God. And it's it's all part of the plan. And um, the Spectre even gives him some advice uh, because he's concerned about his son, Jay. The speed force is split between Jay and Irie and he's in pain because of it. And uh, Spectre gives him advice and reminds him that you have to, that you, you have an extra bit of energy that you can give to your son if you so choose. And, and so that's what he does. So he gets advice from the Spectre of all people. And, and he uses it and he, and he cures. This has a happy ending. I mean, oh my God, a happy ending. <laughs> a Wally West story with a happy ending. Woo-hoo! Thank God. Thank you, Jeremy Adams. I enjoyed this. I straight up, I... Uh, you know, and when's the last time we saw a Justice League dark story with a happy ending? With apologies yeah, to, uh, frankly, I mean, I mean, I love, uh, I love Ram V, but you know, the guy got a little dark there with Justice League dark more than once. So again, uh, again, I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm happy with this, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't the the ending here. There's a hint that Linda also has some speed force powers or some powers. At the end, we're not really sure, but again, a beautiful way to end this on a cliffhanger, almost like Jeff Johns, like Linda might have some superpowers or access to some speed force. We're not sure, but man, what a, this is my favorite comic of the week. Hands down, nothing, nothing comes close to this. Just a shit eating grin on my face. (laughs) Snargle bargle, according to Linda. So here's the thing, right? Like I, I rarely advocate and don't don't really believe in, in bi-weekly comics. Like give me my, you know, one book a month and let's pace it out and build it the story structure correctly. Knowing what we know of Jeremy Adams and what he, he himself personally told us with all the ideas that he has for flash. I, I want this book to come out twice a month <laughs> because I want him to be able to get to more of the stories he wants to tell. Cause yeah, it's, it's pitch perfect. Like you said, um, the the family aspect of it, the super heroic nature of it, the fact that this might be the one DC book out there that, that comes at, that comes out consistently consistently month in and month out that 
you could give to a 10 year old or a 12 year old or a 17 year old or whatever. Or a 53 year old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying for, to bring in young, younger readers, you know, yeah. it's not too dark. It's not too complex. It doesn't lean into uh, some you know, really hard to understand concepts or ideas. So yeah, like if I could have more of this, I would, I would definitely take more of it. Uh, and I, and I say that as a guy who doesn't really think, that like I, I like Barry Allen more than I like Wally West, as much as I've probably read more Wally West flash stories than Barry Allen stories. But I don't know. For me, Barry was the first Flash, and so um, I don't know. I guess you always stick with your your first love, as it were. Uh, but yeah, I was I was really interested to see like wait, Linda has powers. Like what the what the what? Yeah, not sure how that works. Or how that's going to play out, but in Jeremy Adams, I trust. So we'll see how uh, how that wraps up. But yeah, I mean, I echo a lot of what you said. This is this is a great story. Um, seeing Wally with his kids, Maxine Baker, you know, outs herself basically to the to the rest of the West family. Hey, yeah, I'm Maxine Baker. I'm Animal Girl. So expect to see a lot more and we know uh jeremy adams would love to write an animal man book so maybe this is his audition for that i guess we'll see uh okay up next we have robbins number four this is from writer tim seeley baldivar rivas on art ramula fajardo jr on color steve wands on letters uh this one dragged a little bit for me we know that tim drake has been captured Red Robin, I guess he's going by that name again, at least in this story. So he's been captured by the girl who calls herself Jenny Wren. We're not, uh, the, the, the implication is that that's not her real name. She took it from some literary work. Uh, what exactly she has this beef with the Robins and with Batman for is, is not completely clear either. Uh, but she's captured Tim Drake and the rest of the Robins are, are trying to find him. That's basically the gist of this entire issue. And how, how are they going to find him? What is the character dynamic between these different Robins? We get a little bit of um, examples of how they do things so differently and think so differently. But at the end of the day, they got to do what they need to do to find Tim Drake and, uh, and rescue him because he doesn't seem to be able to uh, to rescue himself. Um, and then just as if it's not confusing enough with uh, a little bit of flashbacks and who this Jenny Wren is and, and all that sort of thing. Um, Nightwing goes to sleep or Dick Grayson goes to sleep one night and wakes up and he's back in his agent 37 spiral days. Um, and he wakes up and he's like, oh, I just had the most stressful dream, you know? So the implication is, that he was dreaming of being Nightwing when he's left that uh, story behind or that, that uh, role or whatever behind. So yeah, I'm not, this one's getting a little confusing. I'm not, I'm not sure what the point of it is. I mean, the solicitations were telling us that, yeah, it was basically the Robins sitting around bitching about uh, being the, the sidekick for Batman and how that, wasn't the positive that they really thought it would be. And we, they, the first 
three issues of this lean so far into that that Dick Grayson even said as much to Batman. It's like, yeah, you know, you know why we were all together? We're all sitting around talking about how crappy it was to be your sidekick and how if we had to do it all over again, none of us would choose to do it. So definitely leaning into that aspect of the story. But it, that that part is almost completely uh, abandoned here in, in the search for Tim. And it, I don't know. It, this I don't know where this is going. I don't know what the point of this series is. And all those other new and fresh and interesting concepts that weren't really related to Batman, that there were in that round robin. And this is what we get. And I'm not saying this is a bad story. I'm just saying it hasn't gotten there yet. But I'm, I'm almost not interested in seeing it get there because it just – I'm Batmaned out at this point, you know, I really, really am. And I, we could have got something completely new and different. So I don't know, maybe that's, that's just my bias showing up again. I mean, I try, I tried to read this without thinking about any of that. Uh, but this was, this was a little bit of a slog to read felt very exposition heavy. So, uh, yeah. and, and the art was solid. I mean, Baldivar Rivas, his art has been consistent throughout really good sense of uh, storytelling in terms of the camera angles. He has a lot of kind of three quarter overhead shots or shots uh, three quarter underneath where he's looking up at the target. Um, and so it definitely helps to keep the, the story moving and your eyes uh, engaged, even though there's a lot of talking in this book. So uh, what did you think Rocky? Are you enjoying this? I, I, I think that uh, in fair, I can see what, he uh, giving Tim Seeley the the fullest benefit of all my doubts. This reminds me a little bit. It, it's it's not as good, but it sort of reminds me of that. Uh, I think it was that Mark Wade storyline where where Batman uh, where Batman has the protocols to take out all the Justice League and they discover it, and uh, Ra's al Ghul discovers it and he takes out the Justice League, and and this is here in this case we have this we have this 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 first Robin, this Jennifer Wren or this Jenny Wren character utilizes all the gauntlets against all the Robins. In other words, the gauntlet was the, was the sequence of events that led to them was the, the ultimate test. Each, each Robin had to go through a gauntlet before they became Robin. And she somehow created these narrative drives, these cerebral implants that, and at one point Nightwing uses she wants them to play a game and because she, she puts all these drives on a, uh, 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 narrative. Each one of the Robins has an, has a drive that they, that, that they implant on their, a chip into their cerebral cortex and they, they experience, I, I'm not really sure they, they experience their gauntlet again or something. And that's how, but for some reason when, when Dick Grayson, they, she wants I think Jennifer Wren want this this Wren character wants them to play this game that they almost have to play in order to save Tim Drake. I think. I again, I'm with you. I found this to be a, a little bit confusing. Now, in fairness, I'm sure if I go back and maybe reread the the three previous issues, uh, I will get it. But this feels. Uh, I don't. I, I don't. Um, we're four issues in here, and I, you know. I'm not really, I don't have anything vested. I just don't care who this first Robin is. I, I don't really understand why I'm supposed to care. I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not even clear what, what exactly it is she did. I'm not even clear why she beat up Tim Drake. Like, what's her point? 
Like, what's the point of getting into the heads of all the former Robins? I just, the, the whole thing just seems, I, I, I just don't, I don't get it here. I don't really, I don't even know why they're looking for anarchy, to be honest. Uh, that was never clear to me. And um, I'm not even sure this Cormac Dodge, the escaped artist, how, how he's involved. Uh, I, I'm not, I, I'm not understanding this and I'm not, and I'm not invested enough to actually care moving forward. Uh, and, and I wish I was, but I, this is, this is a baffling thing to me. And I'm just going to say one thing, invent this, this, this Robin story won the, the round Robin. And uh, you know what, just, just as a scolding to all our people out there that are complaining and I'm one of the people and I'm a hypocrite, and I'm, but I'm going to at least acknowledge it here. I, I want, I want more DC titles out there that have less Batman in them. I want I want fewer Batman related titles. I want I want I want to spread the love out to other DC characters. And yet, you know, here we had a round robin and apparently most people voted for a Batman related title called Robins. Uh I mean, we get what we buy. And so I mean, well, we we get what we apparently vote for, people. I mean, voting matters. <laughs> Not to get political, but I don't know, I just got a little bit frustrated because I you know, I think that Tim Seeley, to his credit, I think all this would make sense if I went back and read it all from the beginning and right, right through. But this was a this was editorial. This was an editorial mistake. I, I would have uh, overridden the vote uh, if I was an editor. But you know, that's why I don't work at DC Comics. But in any event, I, I this was this was a miss for me. I, I don't. I just and and it's completely out of continuity as well. It, it contributes to the editorial wonkiness of DC and the overall line. Spoilers. Spoiler isn't she's like she see, appears to be sixteen or seventeen in this in this series, and yet she's twelve years old in Batgirls. But hey, you know continuity is uh, is thrown out the window. You know, and everything matters now in the DC Omniverse. This is one of those titles that um, I think was should simply should not have been. Um, I don't think should have been on the uh, publishing plate, but. I'll stop talking now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I've, I've been following the story, the first three issues, without a problem. And then this one, it's almost like too too much story, too many different angles and trying to be a bit too clever. And it got too too confusing. And I feel the same way. Like if I go back and reread from the beginning, I can probably make sense of this particular issue. Um, and I, yeah, I agree with you 100% on, on this. I, I didn't vote for this. But you know what? This the story that we're getting is a hundred percent the story that I expected. Yeah. In terms of, based on that solicit, like I said, that it was a bunch of Robins sitting around bitching about being Robins. I didn't really expect sure this to be. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, I'm getting exactly what I expect. I didn't think it would be very good, and that's exactly, or I, I should say, I didn't think it would be for me. And it turns out I'm exactly right. Um, so again, I go back to the other interesting concepts that there were, I almost would have taken anything else, but this, but anyway, it is what it is. Uh, hopefully some of those other, other concepts will see the light of day at some point. Um, okay. Up next we have suicide squad King shark number six. This is also by, uh, by writer, Tim Seeley. The art in this issue is by Scott Collins. Let me get to the credits page. Uh, we have John Kalis on colors, and for some reason I can't find the credits. Um, maybe they're at the very end. Yep, there we go. And, and World Design does the colors. So this uh, finishes off the story of 
uh, King Shark in this tournament of different avatars. Um, and I sort of thought that it, the last issue was the end until we got this reveal that the, um, the human avatar had been affected by all the nematodes and had be, in a way become in, uh, the avatar for, for non-human entities for like the, the insect or the bug world. So uh, what did you think of the way this wrapped up, Rocky? It, it was okay. I, I guess uh, I actually, yeah, I, first of all, the art's fantastic. I mean, the, the art is, is really good. I mean, the, it's, it's a visual feast. I mean, it's, the art's very well done. There, there's a lot of action here. And I, I got to admit that the, the storyline was com- totally not what I expected. So, and that's, and that's usually a good thing. And I'll say it's a good thing here. I wasn't expecting to have this tournament of a war between the various species out there. Uh, Tim Seeley had fun with it. This, this was a series that had a lot of humor in it that had a lot. I mean, he thought outside the box here. There was a lot of gory scenes. There was a lot of this, this is, you know, I mean, this is, I can, when I read this, I think of, I actually, when I read a King Shark's dialogue, I, I actually picture I actually hear Sylvester Stallone's voice, <laughs> just like from the Suicide Squad movie, because I, I love the Suicide Squad movie. I think it should have made a billion dollars, but, you know, that's my bias. But uh, and I, I love the character Orca here. I, I think it's uh, I think there's a lot of potential. I mean, if Peacemaker gets a second season, let's see King Shark and Orca on Peacemaker season two. But that's, you know, again, that's my bias. Um I find it interesting that at the end here, uh, King Shark takes one for the team and he basically makes a deal with Amanda Waller, your favorite character, Jace, <laughs> and says, hey, I want uh, the defacer. Uh, and he grows to care for the defacer. He wants the defacer to be basically let out of the Suicide Squad and, and he'll commit himself to Amanda Waller. And there's even a suggestion that Amanda Waller is almost like a mother figure to him. And that he thinks of Amanda Waller, like Amanda Waller might even, it even hints at a softer side to Amanda Waller, which is really kind of odd. I mean, I know, I guess she has one, but, you know, we get, it's just the, <laughs> I don't know. It This tries to go toward what we expect to be some sort of, it, this does actually have a, a happy ending. If, if uh, when you consider all the blood and guts and gore and the death that has occurred in this series, it actually ends on a happy note that the facer is not part of the Suicide Squad and and uh, uh, King Shark is. I mean, they actually break back into Belle Reve because <laughs> that's how crazy this is. So, you know, uh, again, so much action here. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm not... I find it a little bit odd. I had a hard time thinking of Amanda Waller as almost like a, sort of like a mother figure to, to King Shark and that she maybe actually cares for him. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess it is it is what it is. I'm not, I got to tell you, I'm not, I'm not necessarily looking forward to embracing future King Shark stories, but I, I do think that there's, there's, Tim Seeley brought so much imagination to this and he really expanded on the mythology of King Shark and, and all these other, crazy different species in this and this tournament and even the defacer is a character that i think is actually kind of likable and she's we might even who knows we might even see her show up in the pages of nightwing where she initially was to begin with and so you know again i'm not i i don't think i'd be curious to know what the sales are on this i i would like because this is a lot of fun this is this is the type of story that i would expect to be in the backup feature of a suicide squad book 
And I find it very curious that it got its own series, but I suspect it got its own series probably because they were expecting, a, you know, maybe maybe some more positive vibes from the, the Suicide Squad movie because I know these comics are planned in advance. I, I don't know. But I like the character and, you know, I, I think as a there's a lot of future potential for this character. And at a minimum, I think as a speculator, I'm going to, I think, I think, you know, five or six years from now, I think when we see King Shark again, I think maybe this series might actually be something to, to pick up on. This is a good long-term investment, I think, as a speculator. And, and, and as a story, I didn't mind the story. Uh, I think that Tim Seeley, Tim Seeley maybe deserves the, uh, a title. He's been writing the more obscure titles for DC. Uh, Superman and Lobo is probably the biggest, is probably the, I'm, I'm guessing the biggest, the biggest one, the most well-known. And then there's, of course, there's this one, uh, King Shark. And then there's, um, which one am I missing? Oh, Robin's Four. It was also Robin, by yeah. Tim Seeley. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, yeah. So, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, again, again, I thought it was okay. I, th- I feel like the the best issue of the series was actually the last issue because it had so much emotion um, and it really leaned into the friendship between Defacer and, and King Shark. This is resolution and it's action resolution. And for that reason, it fits in with kind of the tone of King Shark. You know, he really isn't, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better word, an actions anti-hero. I won't go so far as to call him a superhero, but he's another one of those that got created as a villain first. And now they're leaning into this idea that he's more of a, an anti-hero. So, yeah, I thought I thought that it worked on a lot of levels. It was fun to see some lesser known characters like Defacer and Bawana Beast. Um wasn't the biggest fan of King Shark going to uh, Amanda to, to make a deal, but I mean, we didn't really have a cho- choice at this point. So uh, I thought it wrapped up well. Um, we definitely saw some um, some evolution and some growth from King Shark in uh, in the series. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's popular enough that they give him another series, and it, it's not you know four or five years down the line but i guess we'll have to wait and see they'll probably wait and see how this does in trade yeah well, uh, as far as the art oh go ahead no i was just gonna add that the, the final page they did reference the graffiti boy in the legion of super animals so I, yeah so i, I get the speculator alert man the first appearance of the legion of super animals led by yeah. king shark so there you go <laughs> yeah they even have legion flight rings <laughs> the distant future uh you're right about the art scott collins gets to cut loose like i said very action oriented with big giant brawls and uh, stuff blowing up and pools of blood and i mean this this one has it all if you're a comic book artist um even at at one point um bawana beast punching a what looks like a whale (laughs) like a big giant sperm whale so uh, yeah, overall, it was a lot of fun. Uh, okay, last book we're going to talk about in detail is Green Lantern number 11. This is from writer Jeffrey Thorne, Tom Rainey, and Marco Santucci on art. Uh, Maria Laura Sanapo does the finishes for pages 16 through 20. Mike Atea on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Now, before we talk in detail about this book, I do want to give a shout out to Jeffrey Thorne for his uh, amazing Spider-Man I think it was 88 point B-E-Y, 88 point beyond one shot that he did last week at Marvel. It was one of the best things I've read so far this year. It was so fun and so fantastic. 
Jeffrey Thorne is a pretty good comic writer, it turns out. I think the problem is, because we've loved the part of the story that he's been telling in Green Lantern that has to do with the stuff on Oa. What we haven't liked, or at least I haven't liked as much, is the stuff he's doing with Jon Stewart because it feels like fan fiction. Because Jon Stewart's his favorite character and he seems to want to put Jon Stewart above all. Um, but, you know, take him off of Jon Stewart, give him Spider-Man and, and some other Spider-Man ancillary characters and he can craft a really fun story. So uh, it gives me hope that once the Jon Stewart stuff is done, that maybe uh, Jeffrey Thorne can can give us some compelling Green Lantern stuff. And that, that, again, that's not to say that this hasn't been uh, an interesting series, but with those dual narratives, we've talked about this as well, Neither one of them, neither one of the storylines, neither the John Stewart storyline nor the Owen storyline, I feel like is far enough along. I mean, we're almost a year in. This is issue 11. Um, we shouldn't still be waiting for the end of the first story arc, in, in my opinion. So <clears throat> that being said, we saw that uh, Cryos basically feels that he needs to take out all of the Guardians and all of the Lanterns because he feels they're the rot at the core the blight in, in the universe. He doesn't think that the Green Lantern Corps is a good thing. So that's where he, he wants to take everybody out. Meanwhile, John Stewart has ascended, whatever that means. He's got all these godlike powers, even to the point that the, uh, the fourth world being Lonar, who's somewhat of a God himself has been guiding John on this journey. And right on the first page, when John's asking like, okay, what, what's going on? And, uh, Lonar says, I don't know. I can't see. And John's like, well, I thought you said you were God. He's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a God of journeys. That doesn't mean I'm the God of knowing everything. So apparently John Stewart's even more powerful than this Lonar uh, uh, new God. So uh, all that to say, yes, John Stewart's very, very powerful. Um, and that's kind of my problem with it, you know, where it, again, it leans into that idea of, of, fan fiction. So of course, John Stewart, along with, uh, at least to his credit, he doesn't have John Stewart defeat Cryos on his own. He actually has, um, Joe Mullen, who I, I don't know how this works, but maybe it's his dislike of Hal Jordan, but Hal Jordan and Joe Mullen at one point get shot by some guy with yellow arrows and they lose all their powers and their rings disappear. It's not really explained, or if it is, I missed it somehow. Um, and so at that point, Joe doesn't have any powers, and John Stewart in his ascended form is taking on Cryos and, and trying to defeat him and get the lanterns, their energy back and their rings back and whatnot. So Joe Mullen goes to the infirmary on Oa to where the Teen Lantern is still in a coma and basically accesses the power of the Green Lantern gauntlet and then backs up John Stewart, and it appears as though they're able to defeat Cryos, but it's not completely clear that he's gone uh, or that he's defeated because we see this big giant ball of energy, and it's like green and purple and blue. And that's basically the last page, and we're told next Nova Lux, whatever that one's. I mean, even the last dialogue in the story is Did we win? Well, that. I don't know, because I don't know what's going on. I don't know if you guys won or not, because Jeffrey Thorne doesn't bother to tell us. So I I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that Jon Stewart is this godlike being, 
And uh, I'm ready for that portion of the story that Jeffrey Thorne has given us to be over. Um, but I, I guess we'll see. The art is solid throughout. I mean, Tom Rainey has definitely, I feel like, improved his anatomy over the course of the series because that's really the, the problem I've had with the art when Tom Rainey gives us proportions that look weird and some of his guys look like pygmies or little people uh, and it's disconcerting, but uh, the color work is, is outstanding. The color work throughout by Michael Atea has been fantastic and that continues in this issue. So uh, yeah, this is, this is okay, but it's just, I can't get over that John Stewart fan fiction feel of the story with him being this godlike being. So I don't know. What did you think? I, uh, I, I agree with you. Fan fiction is a good way to describe it. Although it's got some real cool fanboy epic moments. I love the, oh, I yeah. love Joe Miller in there, you know, taking the teen lantern, talking to teen lantern, even though she's unconscious, she, because she teen lantern was always so damn stubborn. Nobody could take that gauntlet off her. The guardians wanted to take that gauntlet off. No way. It's not going to come off, but somehow she subconsciously let it come off and Joe Million used it to, to join John Stewart in attacking uh, Koyos or whatever. Uh, that was a pretty cool uh, epic moment. Uh, I found, found it really unfortunate that of all, of all things, uh, Hal Jordan loses his connection to the cosmic grail, which I didn't know he had. A, I don't even know what the cosmic grail is to be honest, but apparently it's his connection to the cosmic grail that allows him to form his own ring. His, he's disconnected from the cosmic grail, but for some reason, uh, Teen Lantern can can still have access to her gauntlet. L- none of this stuff is explained, uh, and that, that's the one one thing you know. We we got you know again. You said Michael Oteo's coloring is just absolutely fantastic. Fantastic art. There's some really cool, epic, action packed moments here. The the visuals here really are fantastic. I th- this was this is really good. Also, the lettering here is really big. Really big lettering. Whenever Koyos opens his mouth and says something, he's always, he's obviously you can tell he's got like a beaming, booming, uh, godlike, epic, uh, almost like a, you know ephemeral voice that permeates everything. And uh, I mean the I mean the lettering stands out almost as much as the visuals. It's that it's that, it's that big. Um, some of the I'm I'm a little frustrated. I, I wish I knew exactly what you know John Stewart having this being ascended. It's just I'm still really clued out. I don't understand why John Stewart has is so this is all is all powerful. When even Lonar, the god of journeys, doesn't really know anything about what the hell's going on in John Stewart. John Stewart doesn't know what's going on in John Stewart. John Stewart doesn't know why he has access to the power. Lonar doesn't know why he has ex- has access to the power, but tells him that you're the god of journeys. But tell him you're the god of this, you're the god of that. Last issue we were tell he he had to pick his future state. That didn't make any sense. Uh, there's hyperstates, hyper-time states, future states. Uh, th- this has been a very, very confusing, and, and I hate to say it, but it's it's just been a, from a narrative point of view, it's been a mess uh, in terms of Jon Stewart's journey. I would have much preferred that Jon Stewart, I think it would have been far more interesting had he just been, Jon Stewart just been Jon Stewart and him coming back with 700 surviving Green Lanterns to take on Koyos, and they still had their rings intact somehow. But instead, making him this godlike being, he's not Jon Stewart anymore to me. You know, and I realized that maybe back in Green Lantern Mosaic, a storyline that, that from 25 years ago, I guess I get that obviously Jeffrey Thorne must love that storyline. 
his his building on that storyline, he made it more confusing. That storyline wasn't as confusing as the story that John that uh, Jeffrey Thorne has said here. It's sort of like he he so obviously loves the Green Lantern mytho- mythology and he loves John Stewart, but he I think he's loved John Stewart at the expense of the story. He's put his love for John Stewart ahead of the story. He's put the character ahead of the story. He's put the character ahead of all the other characters at the expense of the overall cohesiveness of the story. Now, don't get me wrong. I can still, I get the gist of this story. I get it. I get what happened to Oa. I get that, you know, sending him off into the dark sector was part of the story. And, but there was, there was some significant misses and misdirections here because we, we take a, that this story took a dis- John Stewart's journey took a decidedly different shift. It went from you know the survival of all those one thousand Green Lanterns that follow John Stewart into the dark sector to being instead of being a story about their survival, suddenly it became a story about John Stewart's ascension because I don't know he's the first guardian and because none of it made sense. None of it made sense. And again, I'm gonna I'm not I'm gonna. I'm going to defend Jeffrey Thorne a little bit here by maybe pointing the finger at DC editorial because in a, at a period of time where we're, we're heading toward a second crisis, uh, you know, a second crisis, sorry, we're heading toward a summer crisis, a dark crisis to have all this talk about John, John Stewart, uh, ascending and about the source and about Godhood and, and all this, all this omnipotent power, at a time when we're already dealing with, uh, we're already dealing with omnipotent powers and the and the great darkness. To you know, the, I understand the great darkness more than I understand John Stewart. The biggest mystery to me, the most confusing thing, the, one of the most confusing narratives of all the DC titles has been the story of John Stewart. Straight up, I don't understand what's going on in in John Stewart's journey here. I don't get it. It hasn't been clearly explained. It hasn't been clearly laid out. And it's been confusing. Every time that Jon Stewart tries to address or get to the bottom of things, Jeffrey Thorne has all the characters that are talking to Jon speak in either riddles or speak around the subject matter. Nothing really makes a lot of sense. Uh, again, the action pack, the action is there, but the story isn't. And I... I like how the two stories came together, but think of how much better this story would have been had John Stewart's sto- had John Stewart's story made more sense or was more cohesive. Him- John Stewart showing up at the end here feels Duke Ek Machina to me, because you know, I mean, Koyos's power seems to be omnipotent, and then oh my God, they're doomed. Oh, but we don't have to worry because we got a Duke Ek Machina power with John Stewart. How did he get his powers? Uh, we don't know. He was uh, he was the original. He's a human guardian. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, he's got access to hyper time. He's got access to future states, and he chose one last issue. What does that mean? I've got no idea. He's the god of journeys, but he isn't. He's something else. Well, what does that mean? Well, even Loner, the god of journeys, doesn't know. I, I, I don't know. This is this is frustrating to me, and you know, I and it's frustrating in more and an annoying way as as opposed to uh, as opposed to. Ah, I'm having a little bit of fun. I'd be lying if I'm not. Ha- I, I'm having a little bit of fun here, but I'm frustrated and I, you know, I'm talking too much. I'll be quiet now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I had a lot of problems with the first issue because it 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 felt so much like John Stewart was placed above all the other lanterns, you know. But then quickly by the second issue, Thorn started winning me over, and you know, three, four, or five issues in. I was fine with what he was doing with John Stewart. 
even though you could, you know, make the argument that Stuart was over there in the dark sector without any power and Green Lantern, uh, you know, rings or allies, and he was rescuing whole alien planets from invaders and whatnot, leaning on his military background to train the indigenous species to protect themselves or whatever. And yeah, it was it was clearly making John Stewart the, the pinnacle hero of the Green Lantern book. But I was okay with that because I understood it and it felt like it was true to the character. But then as soon as Lonar showed up, to your point, it got confusing and it's like Lonar became this plot device to give Stuart these incredible powers that nobody understands and nobody can explain, like you said. Not not Lonar, not John Stewart himself. We can't understand what they are, where they come from. And so it's I'm back to feeling what I felt like in the first issue. Well, John Stewart, you know what? John Stewart's likened to a god because Jeffrey Thorne wants him to be. That's the reason. There's no in story reason, so I gotta go with that. And I'm not I'm not okay with that. Like, I mean, John Stewart, you know, to, to go back to what I was talking about with Jackson Hyde, what I've talked about with, you know, Flash to some extent, John Stewart's not really the Green Lantern that I really care about the most. I'm a Hal Jordan guy, and I know Jeffrey Thorne dislikes Hal Jordan. I think his words were, he's the worst fictional character ever created, which is a little harsh. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, be that as it may, Jeffrey Thorne's obviously entitled to his opinion. Um, even this... Uh, John Stewart that we have now with the background of being a Marine and whatnot, that's not even the John Stewart. Like, I like the original John Stewart from back uh, before Crisis on Infinite Earths, where he grew up super poor and he was an architect and, and that, like, I, I like that. And he didn't have military as his background, but, you know, they, they changed it. A lot of people like this version, whatever. It can work. Don't get me wrong. I haven't read a, a ton of this version of John Stewart prior to uh, – New 52, but you know, it's popular enough and it works. And I have no problem with people saying, no, John Stewart's my, my green lantern. I mean, that's fine. But whether you like John Stewart or not, if you're telling a story with him, the story still has to make sense. I still have to understand it. And, and maybe we'll get there. Maybe Jeffrey Thorne just hasn't explained it. Maybe next issue, it'll be like, okay, as much as we don't like exposition dumps, I, I'm ready at this point for a big wall of text that just explains to me who John Stewart is now. Yeah. Who who's he getting his power from? What does it mean? Does this mean he's going to be? At some point, when I was reading this, it, it almost seemed like John Stewart was going to be taken off the table, like he was going to ascend and you know no longer be part of the. The like usual DC universe. He's so far above the rest of the Green Lantern Corps yeah. that he's going to become like this, you know, yeah. supreme being who will recreate the power battery and then go off to do like godly things. You know, it's going to yeah. ascend beyond sort of human concerns. Yeah. Um, but, I, and I, I was, that... I, oh, I was, I was yeah. just to finish up, I, yeah. and I'm like, I, I thought. Jeffrey Thorne, I thought you'd like this guy. Why do you, why are you writing him out of the story by giving him <laughs> powers that are so godlike? Yeah. No, I, I hear you. And and the other thing is, is that because I'm not sure how, how he got his godlike powers, because it's, is that if, if like we're coming into a dark crisis here. So I'm wondering is, you know, is John Stewart, like my impression is that John Stewart is what is a Green Lantern that 
dies the death of the Justice League. At least I, maybe he isn't. Maybe it's Hal. I, I I think Hal Jordan is not the Green Lantern that dies in the death of the Justice League coming up with Joshua Williamson. I think it's actually John Stewart. And and I'm wondering yeah. if, if John Stewart is he going to have the, his omnipotent powers going into Dark Crisis? And and if he is. All the more reason why I want to know what his power set is. I want it explained because otherwise he's just a wild card Dukek Machina. And there's nothing worse than that, quite frankly. I, I don't, nobody likes a Dukek Machina. I like to have, I like to have a little bit more of a handle on the power set of a major character here. And, and, you know, again, I, you know, I, uh, I will say this, uh, in defense, I know he didn't like Hell Jordan, but I, I didn't actually necessarily. I didn't miss Hell Jordan. I, I'm not. I, I fully. I, I enjoyed this as a Green Lantern comic. I didn't. The fact that I didn't. You know, the fact that Hell Jordan wasn't in this for the most part. What, the scenes that were Hell Jordan was in. So I don't mind that he was sidelined through most of it. I, I and I think he's been used well, well enough. And you know, he can't always shine in the limelight. And and I I think that. This series did give a lot of weight. I thought I really liked. I liked what he did with Joe Mueller in a hell of a lot more than Far Sector. The Far Sector series is, in my view, uh, it wasn't. I actually enjoyed this her role here than I did in Far Sector, if I'm brutally honest. Um, but I, maybe I'm in the minority on that. But I, I like. I like his. He used. He did use the full All Star cast here. Uh, although maybe Guy Gardner got short thrift, and so did Kyle Rayner. They're, you know, clearly they're building different aspects and focusing on different characters in the Green Lantern universe. And I, and I think that for the most part, that's been effective. But I really think that as much as I know he loves Jon Stewart, man, I think there's a little bit of a, you elevated the character, but because of the lack of explanation and, and the disjointed narrative, I think you may have done, done the character a little bit of a disservice as much as I, as much as I hate to say that, but. You know, hope, hopefully I'm wrong and we'll get an explanation maybe in the closing issues in terms of in the next few issues in terms of what is going on with Jon Stewart. And actually, can he explain in English what's going on? Because another little nitpick I have here, even the titles to every one of these issues, it's all in Latin all the time. Nova Lux, Veridius Equus, all the different titles. Each individual issue is has a, has a Latin phrase that... You know, you almost got to Google. Well, I had to Google it. I just, everything in it, just there, there's a degree of um, unnecessary pretentiousness on, on some aspects of the narrative that I, I don't, that are completely unnecessary and didn't serve it uh, as well as it could have. But in any event, um, we'll see. There's, I guess, is is there, is, is, was it, is this a series? Oh, no, it's a, yeah, it is. It's a main series. Yeah. So this isn't a limited it's, yeah. series. It's an yeah, it's an ongoing. It's an ongoing. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. Sometimes it's maybe he's trying to be too clever. Of course, when and I agree with you. I, I didn't miss Hal Jordan either, as much as he's my favorite Lantern. I, I didn't miss him, but of course, when he does show up here, he loses his powers. So does Joe Mull Mulling, for that matter. Yeah. And again, it's not not clear why they get shot with a what? I mean, the yellow impurity is removed, so the fact that they get shot with a yellow arrow that should, shouldn't matter. So I almost it's, you bring up a good point about death of the justice league it is john stewart that gets killed there so you that's leading me to think well what we're going to see in the next issue or, or perhaps the issue after that at the end of this story whenever storyline whenever it does end we'll probably see john stewart giving up you know making the noble sacrifice to give up all his power that he's gained by being ascended to like recreate the power battery or something like that so he goes back to just being a regular old green lantern and 
Williamson can kill him off in, in Justice League <laughs> and he can make the heroic sacrifice. I, I would expect it to be something like that. But then my, if that's indeed the way it goes down, then my next question would be, well, whether or not we understand why he got these powers or what these powers were, what was the point of giving them to him? Then it's really going to feel like fan fiction, right? What was the point of making him all powerful if you're not even going to tell stories with him like that or, you know, use him down the line as, you know, something. So I don't know. Fr- frustrating, frustrating because clearly, like I said, based on uh, last week's uh, amazing Spider-Man issue, Jeffrey Thorne has a lot of talent. The guy can tell a good story. So, uh, all right. Well, uh, there's a couple of other books out this week from DC that we didn't mention. Uh well, we talked about Justice League number 72 and Wonder Woman number 784 last week. They actually got pushed to this week. So if you want to hear our detailed thoughts on those, go back and check out last week's episode if you haven't already. Also, DC Horror Presents Soul Plumber number five comes out. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? number 114. And we have uh, Batman, The Caped Crusader, volume six, trade paperback. Joker War Saga trade paperback and Batwing Luke Fox trade paperback because when you're DC Comics, you can never put out enough Batman. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> uh, as we're winding down here, Rocky, any other episodes or any other content coming up you want to let everybody know about? Well, I'll probably do another uh, Toilet Top 3 uh, by the end of the week. And uh, I'll, I'll uh, beyond that, I, I've got a pretty busy pretty busy week planned so uh, i i don't know i'm, I'm i know i want to join you i know you've been doing a, a very diligent you have my congratulations you're, you're you've been doing an amazing job staying up on your uh, spawn dailies well which at some point hopefully i'll get back to join you on on uh, on that at some point uh but uh right now this week i just got maybe my toilet top three and maybe i, I still i'll be doing a deep dive leading into dark crisis at some point all right. Sounds good. Uh, I will remind everybody that the episode came out yesterday for Super Best Friend, the uh, Kickstarter campaign from writer Jason Inman. We have some more creator uh, interviews coming up for you. J.H. Williams is going to be on the show. Next month, we're going to have J.M. Demetrius. Some other uh, interviews lined up. Jim Zub just got announced is bringing Thunderbolts back over at Marvel. So he'll be on soon to talk about that. Uh, Rocky mentioned Spawn Daily. That's been blowing up. Uh, you guys seem to be really enjoying that. So go over and and uh, and check that out. So yeah, things are going uh, really well. We we uh, really appreciate all the support as always, and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us. Subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.